I think we first need to start with realization that the best CEOs are not the ones that are in the media and the ones that the media tell us are the big ones, the great ones. They're not show ponies. CEOs are people that really understand the competitive environment outside the organization and then translate that into leading through others. A large chunk of the leadership of an organization has to do with leading through others. And to be able to do that, we need to sometimes tap into our experience, we need to tap into other resources to help that person be the best leader they can be. And that means we need to listen. And the only way to listen is to also understand the emotions at play. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm joined today by a good friend of mine, South African, who's been living in the Netherlands for 20 years now. Very experienced team architect who looks at the, the makeup of a team and how a team gels, how personalities fit in and get on with each other effectively and how to ensure that you make everyone feel included, you get the right diversity working in the right way for you on your team and you ensure that you resolve conflicts so everyone works together. And obviously those are all themes that are so important with the Connected Leadership Podcast. So we're going to have a look at making everyone feel comfortable in your team or your organization with my good friend, Exteen Taval. So Exteen, thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. And hello to you, Andy. It's great to speak to you again. It's always handy and interesting to have our conversations because I think it's not just a conversation where we impart information. We also learn from each other and gain insights. And it's always handy and lovely to do that. Absolutely. I mean, we tend to bump into each other mainly at global conferences. So it's always nice to catch up in between. And you're right. I always enjoy our conversations. You, you've got that right balance, as I think people are going to find out by listening today, of being a deep thinker about what you do, but also being very light and generous hearted and warm spirited in the way that you engage. And that's a good combination, which is what made me think you'd be a great guest for us today. So well, I can't take that anywhere but a compliment, Andy. Thank that's you for the, that. <laughs> that's the intention. I introduced you as a team architect and some people might be scratching their head and thinking what they hell is a team architect. So let's start that. Let's define the terms so that we can understand where you're coming from. When you talk about being a team architect, what do you mean? I think I was looking for a term to help to explain to people what I do. And as we know, with most buildings, they have nooks and crannies that haven't been explored in years, or you have to build them from scratch. You know? So teams are the same way. You sometimes have the benefit of looking at a team before it's formed. And so for instance, with mergers and acquisitions, we look at what do people bring from two different companies to a team? And then we design the team from scratch, obviously with a limited pool. You don't have all the freedom. And then and other times you come in and the team just needs renovation. You just need to look at what are the things that need to be renovated within the team, within the relationship system, especially. And other times there's a bit of a teardown. You have to go in and say, well, parts of the team just doesn't work and um, there needs to be a separation. And it's hard to do that. It is to figure out which one of these aspects do we need to focus on. And I've been gathering a little bit of experience in that, to say the least. It's a nice metaphor. It, it works for me. And thinking about that that structural 
image that the architect looks at and creates or, or, or remedies. If you look at a team in the same way, do you look at teams and you say, well, there are small cracks here and there are small issues there, but they're not going to be a fundamental risk to the stability of the team, but here's a major structural flaw. And how do you identify if there is someone who doesn't quite fit with everyone else or who maybe rubs other people up the wrong way, whether they are just a feature and actually we might benefit from some of those quirky features. You know, I talk a lot about the importance of having people who think differently around you and within a team that has to be key or they're likely to be a structural flaw. How do you make that diagnosis? I work mainly with leadership teams. Um, I think an interesting way to explore it is to look at startups, because in startups, you're starting a journey and you're not that far away on it. So most of the companies I work with in the startup field is mainly scale-ups. So they already have their relationships formed, have been in operation for maybe two to three years. They sort of got a lot of funding now and they really want to move. And that means that the culture they need to create with the organization needs to be good as well. And that stems a lot from the founders. So when we looked in at the founders, we start seeing very quickly how they created their own relationship systems. And those relationship systems then interact with each other and with the people they lead. And it creates perspectives of who you are as a leadership team. And people start seeing you through those relationship systems and they stop seeing who you are as a person. And that's where the problems start. Now, if you've been in business for a while, you would have had the opportunity to develop, but also to develop bad habits. And so we also know from psychology, coping mechanism is another way for people to deal with life. So depending what's thrown at you, you learn how to deal with it in a certain way, and those then interact with other people's triggers. So eventually create these systems that firstly start almost by magic, and usually based on triggers and responses to that. And then those things become entrenched. And so you walk into your team and sometimes they have this weirdest behavior. You go like, this is strange. And when we see that there's probably a system that's been built there, very often unintentionally. So we need to first figure out, is this ingrained into who the person is? Or is this part of a system that was created within that team context? I'm a firm believer that what we show other people or the behavior that is seen is not who you are. That's only an expression of what the environment allows you and who you are. So we first need to dive a little bit deeper and see who you are. And based on that, so get the building blocks, get the bricks, get the mortar. And I think the relationships are the mortar and the bricks are who we are. Then we can start building. And so we tend to do that through personality assessments. I don't like calling it personality assessments. Let's just call it assessments. But of course, we look at relationship assessments and then combine that with interviews. And then we actually come to a plan. And so for every team, the plan tends to be unique, but there's also certain elements in it that's really generic that we know will work in most teams and that's how we build then the programs we run with leadership teams i was going to ask you about your assessments because i looked at those on your website i went through your relationships assessment as well it's an area i find interesting we've talked about it on the connected leadership podcast recently i've been exploring it separately because I've been looking at whether they're relevant in mentoring relationships in respect of the book that I'm writing at the moment. So talk to me about the importance of those assessments. And, and you know, many people will have come across psychometric profiling systems, DISC as an example, all the different personality type assessments and so forth. 
you know, for my side, I have a professional relationships assessment. I have a vulnerability scorecard as well. So I use them to a degree as well. How accurate do you think they are? How important are they? And in what way? Who to? Is it to the person who completes it? Is it the person putting the team together? And can we over rely on them? There's about six questions in one there, probably. But uh, that's, that's, that's my speciality. I'll try. I'll, I'll try and sort of find the just <laughs> within that. Um, let's start with maybe a little bit of controversial thing. I'm not a believer in personality types. If you look at the ones that are mainly used in corporate environments, they're based on Jungian psychology. It's a theory that was floated in the first half of the 20th century. Then things like Myers Briggs came around in the 1940s, has been expanded on, deepened, but they're all still at the core based on behaviorism. So it's about observation and then classifying people into observable or reactionary classifications. I think when I reduce people to a four-letter acronym or a color, I take away the completeness of who the person is. And if I only take that as a reason to interact with a person or the way that I interact with a person... There are so many things I'm going to be missing. And so what I see in today's cultures is that and in business cultures is we try and look for an easy way out. We try and look for a tick box exercise or HR doesn't always know what to do about these things, especially when it comes to conflict. And that's my specialization is about the conflict element. So when we do a generic personality assessment, they say, well, that's your personality and that's how we can interact and that's how we're going to avoid conflict. We're missing the point. The conflict is not something you need to avoid. Conflict is something you need to manage. And you need to learn the skills to manage it. And you need to learn the skills to manage it within your paradigm. So that means you need to hold anything you engage with other people as a theory or a hypothesis. You cannot say this is the truth because you're going to get into surprises and then you're going to not be able to deal with the surprises because you go like, you don't fit in the box. So what am I supposed to do with you now? And then I've lost all my skills because my skills are tied into a box. So I like to look at these things as ways of getting the conversation started and helping people to realize the differences and then focus on how are those differences being beneficial and how are they getting in the way. So I don't care if you use tarot or if you use personality assessments. I've chosen the ones that we use because it gives us insights and gives us insights into the way that people engage and interact with each other. And so we have five different personality assessments or different assessments. We look at behavior because that is the way that you express yourself. So that's the recognizable one. That's one of the reasons why all these personality type assessments sell well in companies because you really can go like, oh yeah, that's like me. But it doesn't ask you to dig any deeper than that. <laughs> it's sort of a here is the as is and the, the way you want to be and the way that you feel is not always addressed. And so we also look at relationships. And that is how you engage on the one hand, positively with the relationships, negatively, how you're triggered within relationships, and then aspirationally, what do you believe is important in the relationships? And that drives a lot of our interactions. And then we look at cognitive, your ability, cognitive empathy, your ability to read other people's emotions. So do you have the capacity to do that? The drawback within that is that not everybody does. And it's not something everybody can learn. That's why we have diagnosis of things like Asperger's and autism, where people cannot read people's emotions. That doesn't mean people with Asperger's or autism doesn't feel very deeply. They just can't see yours. So we need to f realize that and say, well, okay, then we need to vocalize those emotions. And then the other side, if you look at the same curve, we have people that are what I call super seers. They are exceptionally gifted at, at seeing how you feel. They make amazing coaches. They're usually the emotional nodes within organizations. They're the ones that keep teams together. 
And when we identify them, we can use them to be an interrupt within the organization to say, well, when they put up their hand and they talk about the feelings, we need to listen because they see them. The fun thing about that is there was a study done with 23andMe and I think it was Baron Cohen. And they looked at cognitive empathy and they realized that there's actually a genetic component. It explains a lot about autism as well. But it also means that the majority of us have enough of those combined, of those genes combined, to give us an av- a good average. And so that's why we think that we can read other people's emotions because all of us are sort of the same in our capabilities. Yes, you can develop it. You can develop it quite well. But you cannot be at the same development level as somebody that's a super seer. But knowing that there's a difference means you can also forgive yourself for the mistakes that you make and you can let go because you're not perfect. And if somebody else tells you, you know what, you didn't catch my feelings there, you don't have to feel guilty. You can just say, okay, explain to me. And that's where we teach people the skills on how to listen in a different way, in a way that leaders should listen. And then we have one more assessment, which has to do with what drives me, what motivates me. Because if we can figure out what is behind what you want to do, then we can also see if it's being expressed in your current team. And if it's not, why not? What's holding you back? And if it's holding you back, it's a form of stress. So we tend to see that people that are not well matched or where they're, what really motivates and drives them cannot be expressed, tend to be prone to burnout. And then we have an overall score we looked at where we sort of hide between all the other questions, which has to do with how honestly do you answer questions, which tend to give an indication of the difference between do you trust or do you feel you're trusted? And how much do you think you have to lie or portray yourself differently to be seen. That usually goes towards seeing cracks within the team that might not be visible at first, so hidden tensions. So that's basically the assessments that we do and the, the reasons behind them. And they also overlay nicely with each other so we can show differences and have the conversation about those differences. I think it's really important what you say about over-reliance on these and assuming that they tell us everything about someone and personalities being actually a lot more nuanced than that. And I think that's one of my concerns about them. And one of the things that I've learned from recent conversations, because I've always had a funny relationship with any kind of personality testing and profiling, and I think it is based on the feeling that it gives people a full sense of security, that they don't actually have to engage in a relationship, that they can work out who someone is based on their answers to a random series of questions. I know they're not random, but I think what I've learned is that they're a great tool for understanding yourself as much as understanding other people. And they give you a framework to work within and to start understanding but then you have to build from there. I guess a good analogy would be, you know, you don't, if you break your leg, you use crutches to support yourself. You don't use them to walk. You don't just walk on the crutches. You just get the support and that they provide that crutch with the relationship, you know, would be a very clumsy metaphor as I try and express what I'm taking from that. Do you think it is more important to use those assessments to understand yourself rather than using them solely as outward looking, trying to understand your team? What's the balance there? I think it's maybe handy to just take one little side step. There are a lot of assessments out there and they originally come from clinical practice often. Mm. And clinical practice is not something I mean. I'm more into coaching and I'm more into helping people around conflict. So it is specialization. And within that specialization, I use the tools that benefit me within the people that I work with within that specialization. So we look at conflict. I'm not here to diagnose anybody. I'm not here to tell anybody where their personality flaws and everything else are. 
And if that's the case, then understanding is at the core and it's understanding why people do certain things. Maybe interesting to just realize why I do it. I had a friend when I was about six years age of age that his name was Johnny and Johnny was playing and I was playing in the front garden and his mom called him to go do some chores and he ran off to her and she gave him a bottle to go get some paraffin from the local shop. Yes, I'm that old and I grew up that rurally and uh, he ran around the corner. And then I just heard him scream. So I ran over around the corner as well. And I looked and Johnny had fallen with a glass bottle and he had cut open his stomach. Um, and as a six-year-old kid, I was sitting there holding my friend and literally holding, trying to hold his guts in. And my mom came out and she gave me a little tea towel and I just held him, held him and held his guts messing with a tea towel that she'd wet, wet it and waited for the ambulance, took forever for the ambulance to arrive because we lived rather rurally. And later that day, after the ambulance taken away, I got a phone call that from the local lady at the telephone exchange, because we still had a manual telephone exchange at the time, that Johnny had not made it. And it was, it was hard. It shaped a lot of things about how I look at people. But what made it harder was that when I went to school, about six months later, four, six months later, when I told the kids about my friend and how I missed him, they said he didn't matter because he was black. And that sort of horrible realization about how horrible people can be. And then what, what is my nanny? What's my nanny now? Because my nanny was black and she was like a second mom to me. Am I not allowed to love anymore? You know, and all these questions you ask yourself about eventually comes down to one thing. Why are people so horrible? And so I went through my life gaining a lot of experience about how horrible people can be from being beaten up and waterboarded and a lot of other stuff. And the only thing I always ask me is if people are inherently not bad, why do they behave badly? And that's become my study, my area of study. And so I've translated that into basically into conflict within teams. And so for me, anything that helps me to understand what could break our ability to be compassionate and to be caring and to be focused on the person, anything that puts them into a category of them, and not us is something that I would like to explore and figure out how has that come about and how can we break that mold. And so the assessments we use is in line with that. It is trying to figure out what in your experience in your past would get in the way of you forming compassionate and very human relationships with people. Because as leaders, we have to have those relationships. We don't necessarily have to be invested in them, but we have to have them. And I think that is where an assessment for me would be succeed or fail. And so for me to classify people into personality types doesn't help my practice. It's a very hard story to hear and a very powerful motivator. Thank you for sharing it. Just to reinforce for people who don't know you, I mentioned in the introduction that you're originally from South Africa. So that puts a bit of context into the comments that you receive. It doesn't excuse them in the slightest. Mm -mm. As anyone who knows me will know, I believe, but I think that context is important. So I want to move on and I want to talk about, you know, that compassion in the workplace and that conflict in the workplace. Let's explore that a bit more. Before we do, if people want to look at your assessments and try them for themselves, where do they find them? Well, it's on our website. It's exponentially.me forward slash assessments. If you want to go straight to the assessments page or it's on the menu at the top, you just need to create a user because we believe that data should also be safe. And under European GDPR rules, we have to make sure that data is safe. So it's all hosted in Germany as well, where apparently the safest data centers are. 
And there's little videos that explain the basics with each assessment. And we make it available for free. We believe that everybody should have access to things that can help. Brilliant. Thanks, Axteen. So let's dig a little bit deeper and take that motivating belief that people aren't inherently bad, what makes them behave badly, and how does that play out in the workplace? You've shared with me separately at different occasions your own experiences that have driven you as well, not just your, your experience as a six-year-old, but you've had experiences in the workplace where you've been made to feel like an outsider. And that's probably driven particularly your thoughts on inclusivity in the workplace. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think the shortest path in that conversation is to basically say I came out when I was 26 to my dad. And very shortly after that, I was disowned and kicked out of the family in a way. My mum and I have an amazing, amazing relationship, which I never thought would be possible. But it's partly due to what I learned over the years on how to reestablish connection, even when things are really hard and it's emotionally very difficult. In the workplace itself, discrimination has taken all kinds of weird turns, everything from somebody accusing me of um, like a Me Too scenario where with his girlfriend, which he observed me giving her a hug from three buildings away through the window, and then her decking him for literally in the office as he started accusing me of this. And I to myself, wow, you know, how did that come about? How, I mean, she was in a state because she had to do some stuff and she was really frustrated and angry and upset and she started crying. And so I offered her a hug and she leaned into it. There was no impropriety. There was nothing untoward from, from either one of our sides, but an external observer came to that conclusion. And then from that external observer, they took action that without understanding or even seeking understanding. And I thought it was quite typifying of what we tend to do. We tend to have these assumptions about people, sometimes based on what we've heard about them and not what we've experienced. And then based on that, we make these broad sweeping conclusions and start treating them with that lens only. And so when you are already feeling like an outsider because you're either gay or you're black or you're a woman in a mainly male-dominated environment, it's very hard for things not to play into that and make it worse. If you get told that you're an outsider 10 times a day with something that somebody says, those gays or women or, you know, whatever labels thrown around, if you hear that 10 times a day, that is your experience of your workplace. Whereas if you do not fall into one of those minorities or in one of those outsider groups, you don't tend to hear those things. And because you're more sensitive to it, because you've experienced the bad that follows after that, so you tend to ward yourself against it. You see it very clearly, constantly. That means also that the experience of people in minorities, for instance, at work is different from the majority. And we can only really hear it if we're open to realizing the, what the impact is that it has on people. And that's hard. That's really hard to, to say that I might be seen as a bad person, even though I don't think I am. And then realizing that you're not a bad person you just behaved badly. And we need to make that distinction because behavior can be forgiven. And rather easily, when we say sorry, people tend to forgive us. But I also think that a lot of our behavior is driven by that. Do we belong? Do we feel like we belong? And are we afraid of what we say, what we say might move us out of that belonging sphere? And that in and out group feelings is really deeply rooted. I think it goes very down to the core of our biology. It actually starts very early in life. And that then drives us to behave in certain ways that might be contrary to who we believe we are, our belief in being good people. And so we see that. I see that currently constantly in the world around us with the amount of stress we're all going through at the moment. 
everything from the war in Ukraine all the way through to the economy and the downturns everywhere in the economies and the stress in general after COVID. We tend to be much more primarily driven and bipolarizing and things like that. And it's all because we're looking for safety. And so if we can give each other safety without having to be polarized, I think that's where we start the conversation from. We can't have the conversation in conflict. We need to go after the conversation in a sense of safety. And that happens when we start making peace. If you're in a leadership position and would like to review your own professional relationship strategy, you may be interested in booking a 15-minute call with Andy. Please visit andylapata.com forward slash discovery to find out more. That raises a really interesting and I think a really important question for me. And if we look at this on a global scale and a macro scale, if you like, rather than just looking in the workplace, because I think one understanding of one feeds the other anyway. You talk about the conflict in the world today, and one of the biggest areas of conflict, and it's not a conflict like the conflict in Ukraine with tanks and bombs and so forth. It's a conflict of ideas and the way we respond to those ideas. And that's the best way to sum it up is the use of and the understanding of the term woke. If you are towards the right, perhaps, but certainly if you are more conservative with a small c, uh, you don't like change woke becomes a pejorative term. It means crazy ideas. It means people who want to shift their way of being. It means liberalism on steroids and it's disruptive and it leaves people behind because it ignores the mass, the majority, and leaves them, it wants to uproot their world. If you are more liberal with a small L, woke means caring and compassion and inclusivity and understanding. And I think what's happened is become a war of use of this word, a war of extremes to a degree. Black, I think you mentioned Black Lives Matter and it cropped up in my mind as you said it, as you took, as you shared your last answer. Black Lives Matter became instead of let's all understand that there are a lot of people who are suffering because of prejudice. It became these people are extremists who want to change everything versus we need to change everything statues as well. You, know, you could go on and on. How do leaders in communities, leaders in society, whatever their political outlook, assuming they are centre ground one way or the other, how do we move away from that battle of ideas and the desire to get that one-upmanship, which is leading to less understanding either way to more of what you talk about seeking to understand seeking to find forgiveness where it's necessary seeking to make everyone feel included and have a healthier conversation and i talk about that in the global sense because i think if we can understand that at a global level it impacts our behavior in the workplace because if people are pushing back because they read a newspaper that tells them to push back whichever direction, then that's going to play out in their personal relationships as well. I think it's a few things you touched on. <laughs> Let's start with one thing. I believe the word work is like a lot of other words. It gets reappropriate, misappropriated and used in different contexts and, and starts to mean something different. It's unfortunately the nature of culture and the nature of people that things will evolve, not always for the better, but they will evolve. So for instance, in the 19th century, the word gay meant happy. In the 20th century, it became to mean homosexual. And in the 21st century, it's become a derogatory term used online to describe somebody that's an idiot. So the words change. Do we have to believe in every single meaning of it? It's words. It, that's all it is. It, it's a way of describing something. We'll find a different term to describe things better and differently. Over time, th these things change. You drag, for instance, a century ago, you would be locked up. Being gay in South Africa in the 1980s was got locked up for 15 years. So 
society changes, our perspective keeps on changing. What I think all of us crave is that sense of connection. And these kind of words create separation. So how do I find different ways of describing things? For me, the word woke means nothing other than somebody that's open-minded enough to listen. And the way it's been picked up in the media is become, I think, rather damaging. And I think if we just sit down and have a conversation, it makes a bit, it makes a difference. It also takes consideration that people that have had this conversation every single day, if I walk into the office and the first thing people say, Hey, homo, you know, which has happened. <laughs> if you hear that 10 times a day, you get to a point where you're like, you know what? I don't want to have the conversation with you anymore. I'm not open to having the conversation with you. You've proven through what you've said and the use of words and derogatory terms that you are not ready to have a deep and meaningful conversation. And in some days, I'm just not in the mood. Seriously, I've had enough. I've listened to this every single day. And if you, and as a fr black friend of mine recently told me, if you as a white guy want to have a conversation about race, just ask me first, as your friend, do I want to have that conversation with you? <laughs> right? Which really took me aback because... I'd not meant to cause him any harm. I'd not been intentional in trying to do anything bad, but because I did not understand what he was going through. On certain things, I was glib and other things I delved too deeply. And it's taken us months to get over that one conversation. And so I think we should have the conversations, but we should have it when people are ready and willing to have those conversations. And it happens in the workplace as well. If a conflict is currently escalating, we need to diffuse it first before we can have the conversation. And if we just keep on hammering on, we just make it worse. And so I think when it comes to all this kind of cultural stuff and we say, well, yeah, the media creates a perspective. It creates a context. And the more we play up to that context and we give that context credence, we're in, else, in essence creating a helpless society. We're creating a way in which we can say, I am helpless to change things. It's all hopeless. And I think... I think that's this definition about hope, which I might want to share with you. And it, it has to do with this difference between optimism. We all feel that, and it's my definition, by the way, don't look at it, look at it, Google it, because you get a lot of different definitions. And for me, optimism is believing that something will be better. And hope is when I find the path to get there, or at least the first step. And I believe that we are in a hopeless environment when we lose the path, not when we lose optimism. Optimism follows the loss of hopeless, of hope, or the path. And so when we're leaders and organizations, we're in the business of creating hope. We're in the business of creating paths, even if it's just the very next step to a resolution. And when we start looking at our friendships and our relationships like that, you know, how do we take the next step? How do we not keep on being stuck in the quagmire or in conflict? That's actually where we start growing. And it might be that we don't need to grow with the person we're having the conversation with, but with somebody else. It's very powerful and that distinction between optimism and hope and applying it to relationships, I think really resonates. If I know it really resonates with me. And also the fact that you might have to have the conversation with someone else. So coming back to that team scenario where you want the relationships to be strong and you don't want conflict in the workplace, how do you handle those relationships with the people that call you names, with the people who have inappropriate conversations, with the people who treat you with disrespect, or even simply where you just don't feel you have anything in common. Let's move it away from conflict and to disconnection. How do you get the balance between understanding 
you're not going to get on with everyone. You're not going to build the best rapport with everyone. And needing to create an environment where people are there for you when you need them, that you support each other, and you have mutual respect, if not mutual like. There's a lot of the terms that you use that I don't like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's explore it's, that. <laughs> but we can it's, still respect each other. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, they sound like a lot of cop-out terms. Okay. Like I can say, if I classify you again, if I just I just need to like you. I just need to get along with you. I don't really need to respect you. I don't really need to see who you are. I can just say, well, okay, here's the box I'm going to put you in. And then if I can treat you that like that box, then you're okay. And that does not lead to conversations that take the conversation further. Yes, we don't have to be friends with everyone. We don't need, we don't have to have a sense of, I need to please everyone. Of course not. You have to be you first. But how much of you are you willing to share? There's this interesting book called The Importance of Not Giving an F. I think what I found in that book the most interesting is the author says, there's only so many Fs you can give, all right? Or so many things you can focus on, or so many things that you can find important in your life before it becomes overwhelming. It's also primary principle in paradox in decision-making. Find the relationships you want to cultivate and find at least one that is difficult and especially if it crosses one of your boundaries that you are not usually willing to explore. If you're a white guy or white girl, find a black person, male, female, or however gendered, and have a conversation. Let them tell you about their world experience. And then you do something very specific. You watch for the emotions. There's this little trick I teach people, which actually comes from Chris Voss in his book, Never Split the Difference, chapter three and four for people, for the people that are interested in reading that. It's about asking what and how questions and making them open-ended and not hot inquiries. So not what, not what the hell do you think you're doing? Not that kind of question. Yeah. But it's about the summary. We all talk about active listening, asking questions and summarizing and all those kind of things and active listening. But the way that Chris and, and the FBI explores it in the hostage negotiation is to say, we also need to look at the emotion. So can we summarize, take the gist of what somebody said, and then also add the emotion to that? So when ABC happens, it sounds like that is very frustrating or that it makes you angry. And until such times, the person can acknowledge that the content is right, not you as a person is right, because if you strive towards that, you have the wrong focus. Once you can recognize the content to be right, that's usually when people feel hurt. And if you focus on that, when you're having deep conversations with people about joy and about sadness, not just about the sad stuff, you learn to read their faces and it improves your cognitive empathy, which means you improve it across all kinds of boundaries. And when we want to really listen and see people for who they are. We need to start being able to see better. I have a final question for you, which really comes from something you said earlier on. I've got a feeling you've answered that just now to some degree, but I want to summarize it because I think this for me probably summarizes a lot of what we've talked about, not everything, but a lot of what we talked about in this conversation. But quite early on in our conversation, you talked about the need to listen like a leader. And I think a lot of what you shared boils down to that and the elements in terms of looking at the emotion and, and trying to not be right, but to get them to accept the state they're in it, it is part of that. But if you were to sum up what listening like a leader means in a way that really creates a team that has the right structure that is sound and stable and that comes from how the leader engages with people and how they 
pass that culture through that team. What are the key elements of that? I think we first need to start with realization that the best CEOs are not the ones that are in the media and the ones that the media tell us are the big ones, the great ones. They're not show ponies. CEOs are people that really understand the competitive environment outside the organization and then translate that into leading through others. I think when we start looking at leadership as leading through others, it's not everybody's just a team lead of somebody doing an actual job or actual job sounds really weird, but let's say customer engaging or operational and so on. Uh, a large chunk of the leadership and organization has to do with leading through others. And to be able to do that, we need to sometimes tap into our experience. We need to tap into other resources to help that person be the best leader they can be. And that means we need to listen. And the only way to listen is to also understand the emotions at play. I'm not saying getting everybody to be emotional because there's a difference between talking about emotions and being emotional. Sometimes emotional is necessary, but talking about emotions creates safety and trust. So if we give the opportunity for others to speak so that we can really listen, we can start discovering where the schisms in teams are forming and sometimes within organizations. There is a um, interesting writer on this. Kim Scott talks about radical candor. And one of the tricks they did, I think it was at Apple or Google, is they get actually a leader one step up to come and listen to your team. And that means that there are two leaders, one more senior and, and one that leads you directly, that's now going to focus on the issues that you've highlighted. And when they come back within an hour or two with some direction, i.e. hope, i.e. the next steps, it feels not only that you've been listened to, but that you've been taken seriously. And I think that is where, for me, is at the core of leadership, listening and taking action. We guide as leaders. We don't control. We put up boundaries we don't put up dartboards. So when we steer people towards a goal, it doesn't matter in football if you score in the bottom left-hand corner or the top right-hand corner. It doesn't matter. A goal's a goal. It's not a dartboard. So don't get hung up on a KPI. Get hung up on the performance of the team and make sure that people work well together. And the moment we establish those connections, we see that performance increased by up to 40%. We shift that needle within three months. We shifted within 22 days, actually. Not that much, but we can shift it to 10 to 15% within 22 days. Because we give people the opportunity to speak and then figure out together what works best for the team. So leaders, listen and act. Excellent. That's, that's fantastic. Before we go, you mentioned earlier how language has evolved and you talked about how gay, for example, was used originally in the Victorian times. And it reminded me of a social media meme that I saw and shared the other day. Uh, sorely missed Victorian slang. And I don't know if you saw this. I can't share all of them. They wouldn't be appropriate for a family-friendly show like this. But it has a top eight, including giggle mug, which means always smiling, uh, bitch the pot, which means pour the tea. My favorite, personally, got the morbs, M-O-R-B-S, got the morbs, which means temporarily sad. Tight as a boiled owl, uh, which is drunk. Poked up, embarrassed. Uh, sauce box was Victorian slang for the mouth. I'm going to pass over the next one, which was uh, Victorian slang for another part of the anatomy. And then finally, if you're unwell, you're not up to dick. So to finish on a light note, you mentioned Victorian language and the evolution of language. There are some to reflect upon. You've given us a lot to reflect upon today. I've really enjoyed it. I introduced you by saying that you're very thoughtful about your topic. And I think that anyone listening to this knows why I said that now. 
There are so many golden nuggets in what you've shared, so much to reflect upon, as is not uncommon on the Connected Leadership podcast. Most of my questions that I planned have gone unasked because you just gave me enough to dig deeper into and and you sparked different thoughts in me as we spoke. So we didn't even follow my theme that I planned. And that's fine because I think, you know, you shared the story of your friend when you were six years old and that really led us down a slightly different route, but we got to where we wanted to in the end. But I think through a much more meaningful uh, journey, if that makes sense. So thank you very much for your generosity of your openness, your willingness to share and the brilliance of the ideas that you shared as well. Really appreciate you joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure, Andy. Thanks, Thank you for having me. So thank you so much to Exteen for, for, for joining me. I really enjoyed that, and I hope that you did as well. It, it's so hard to summarise something with so many ideas in there, but if I was, it is that listen like a leader. I know I went off on a slight tangent, and it's a bit of a, a source of frustration for me at the moment as someone who watches global politics closely the way that we're just creating these opposing camps and creating definitions of words. We talked about woke um, that suit our agenda rather than seeking to understand, seeking to listen. Go back to a quote that I've used so many times from a recent episode of the Connected Leadership podcast, which was seek not to be the right person or to have to win your argument, but seek to be the one who learns the most. You'll know what I mean. Don't seek to be right. Seek to be the one who learns the most. And I think that what Exton said today fits with that really nicely. So lots for you to think about, lots of action for you to take in terms of listening to people and understanding where they're at. And of course, included in all of those actions, we'll be joining us again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.